dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great, great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to come to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this great your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and not have asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding and discerning what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning mind, that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk, if you will walk in my ways, keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I begin the message this morning, I just want to say how much I appreciated the work of Justin and the choir and the praise teams throughout the Lenten season and all they've done to enhance our worship. It's been really great. Now we're going to be in 1 Kings today. If you are part of the Year of the Bible Project, you read this book in the past week and you maybe put your stone into the basket outside, 22 chapters, might take two or three hours to read through it, and in that space of time, you cover about 120 years of Israel's history. It begins with a significant king by the name of Solomon. It ends with a significant king by the name of Ahab. Those are kind of the two bookends of this story, Solomon and Ahab. They have practically nothing in common, except that in, with both of them, their marriages brought them down spiritually. Hmm. Well, after Solomon, the kingdom split, and you had the kingdom of David in the land of Judah, generally mostly good kings, but they had their failures. And then you had the kingdom of Israel to the north, altogether bad kings who sometimes had spasms of goodness. <laughs> what I think of when I read through 1 Kings is how God is able to work through his people and to accomplish his purposes through our failures as well as through our faithfulness. Something to think about. So I invite you to turn to 1 Kings. We're going to look at Solomon, the man Solomon, and take the sermon outline that you'll find in your bulletin. 1 Kings.
The rule of King Solomon stands head and shoulders above all the other kings of Judah and Israel. We have much to learn from Solomon's success story, but also, sadly, from his failures. We're going to have an introduction, first of all, and see how Solomon came to the throne. David appointed his son and, and thwarts the desires of the would-be rulers. That's chapters 1 and 2. It was God's intention, and it was King David's intention, that Solomon would succeed David to the throne. However, another person chose to run against Solomon in the primaries. Adonijah was the older son, and he thought he ought to be king. And, of course, it didn't work out that way. Solomon executed some of his opponents. Uh, we don't do that anymore. We don't assassinate opponents. We just assassinate their character in today's politics. Now, Israel was God's chosen nation, and the king was God's anointed. And what we need to understand in Christian theology is there is not today a chosen nation or an anointed king, although we can think of God's people as chosen and God's people as anointed. That's a thought to take somewhere too. But there is no chosen nation, there is no anointed king. During the 2016 campaign, almost 100 ministers gathered around one of the candidates and they prayed this, President-to-be, and they gave the name, we decree and declare from the crown of your head to the sole of your feet that the favor of the Lord will surround you like a shield in Jesus' name. Now, who was that candidate? I'm not going to say. <laughs> figure it out. Go figure. No, today it's different. The obligation to support human government is given in the Bible. Human government, be it ever so unregenerate, nonetheless, in the plan of God, works for the good of the people, and uh, we need to be critical of it when we need to be critical and see to it that it works for justice and civility and for peace. The amazing truth is that God works through these human institutions, including government, and all the intrigue and, and uh, inappropriateness sometimes of politics. He works through that, and he accomplishes his purposes in the world. Now, what can we learn from Solomon, this good but somewhat flawed ruler? I want to give you four features of his rule. And the first is Solomon was gifted with unequaled wisdom. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and he said, ask whatever you want for me to give you. And Solomon said, I need wisdom. First Kings 3, 7, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, though I'm just a little child. I do not know how to go out and how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered, accounted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? What a humble spirit as he prayed for wisdom. How do we pray for, or if we pray, what do we pursue? What do we want to have? Well, we want to have a long life. We want to have prosperity. We want to have success in our endeavors, and if we don't care about God's will, we don't care if our financial success or our success over others is done at their disadvantage. Take the scandal of admission into some schools if you want to think about that. But if we have a heart for God, 
we think like Jesus taught. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then God will take care of these other blessings that he chooses to bring your way. Wisdom is terribly needed in our time. We need knowledge, yes, but maybe we have too much knowledge sometimes. We need wisdom in our world. Wisdom, if wisdom prevailed, life today would be so much different. And so we need to pray kind of like Solomon prayed, as James tells us. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And political leaders need to have wisdom. I, I gave a prayer once to Long Beach City Council, and they were really having some squabbles. And I read from the book of James. If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. You want to check out what's driving you? Measure by that, and you'll see if you have the true wisdom. The state of Ohio at the Capitol building, as you walk up to it, there's a slogan you'll walk over, and it's taken from the Gospel of Matthew and the story of the rich young ruler, and it says, with God, all things are possible. They tried to get after that, but it's still there. And uh, Jesus spoke those words because the rich young ruler was full of greed. And the apostles said, Lord, we have a problem with greed too. What are we going to do? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And sometimes I wonder if the prayer shouldn't be, may everybody who passes back past that plaque and go into the state capitol be delivered of greed. Wouldn't that make a difference? <laughs> Wouldn't that make a difference? God's gift of wisdom to Solomon. We see it three ways here. We see it first of all in his judgment in chapter 3. Two prostitutes come to Solomon with a dispute over a dead baby. Let's see what happened as these two people faced off in people's court. Chapter 3, verse 19. One woman said, the other woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and took her dead son at my breast. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine, the dead one is yours. And the first one said, no, the dead one is yours and the living one is mine. And thus they spoke before the judge. What's he going to do? Well, Solomon could call up the bailiff and he could say, take a swab out of this woman's cheek. Take a swab from this woman's cheek and take a swab from the infant. And court is adjourned until the results are in and then I'll tell you my decision based on the DNA. Well, he didn't have that then, but uh, here was Solomon's rather unusual idea. He called for a sword, and he said to the, to the sword bearer, cut the living child in two and give each mother half. Ah. And then the woman whose son was alive 
said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her, give her the living child, but by no means put him to death. But the other one said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. And the king said, give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. You see, the true mother was loving and valued the life of the child. And she said, better yours than dead. But the false mother, she was selfish and uncaring, and she said, better dead than yours. And Solomon's decision was seen as so wise that the fame of his wisdom went out to the, all the lands. Solomon is also wise in his administration, and this is the theme of chapter 4. We're not going to read through it. Solomon, Solomon selected the members of his cabinet, and Solomon selected the governors of the tribes of Israel. Significant tests, and he did this out of wisdom. Third, we see that Solomon was wise in learning in Proverbs and songs and nature. Verses 29 to 34 literally drip with references to his wisdom. He had very great insight. He had a breadth of understanding. He was wiser than any other man. His fame spread to the surrounding nations. We're told that he authored 3,000 Proverbs, and perhaps many of those are contained in the book of Proverbs. And he wrote over 1,000 songs. Perhaps the Song of Solomon is one of these. And perhaps he is also the author of Ecclesiastes, which has such a unique wisdom of his own. Thomas Jefferson was a very wise man. Uh, someone once said, what do you recommend I read? And Jefferson took a couple days to compile a list of over 75 works. Here you are for a starter. <laughs> but you know, Thomas Jefferson did not follow Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he picked and chose from the Bible based on what he liked and what he didn't like. He did not have the wisdom of Solomon. Now, a second feature of Solomon, he had unbelievable wealth. Unbelievable wealth. You read of his daily provisions in chapter 4. But what I want you to see is the next point. His subjects lived in prosperity and peace. Many, many kings can live in luxury while their subjects live in squalor. But this was not the case with Solomon. The wealth was shared. The wealth was shared down. We're told in verse uh, 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They all, they ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon's rule extended from the Euphrates River on the east to the Mediterranean Sea on the west, down to the border with Egypt, and it was all a land of peace. It's, verse 24 said, he had peace. He had shalom on all sides. What a tribute to wise government. And the result is, according to verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. To say somebody is living safely under his vine and under his fig tree means it's safe to go out to earn a living. It's safe to be at home. You don't have to fear domestic violence. And any ruler that can bring that to the people is a wise ruler indeed. The result is uh, that the people honored him. And this is such a rarity in the world. Modern, is modern Israel doesn't have this kind of shalom. Most nations don't have this kind of shalom. 
And this is why we should pray for our rulers, as 1 Timothy 2 says, that we might live peaceable lives. His palace is described in chapter 7. It took 11 years to build. It was quite a place of splendor. And he built a similar palace for his Egyptian wife. And perhaps this marriage was the start of his later failure. His enterprises are taught in chapter 9, great business dealings at home and abroad. But what I want you to see is his unmatched splendor that is in chapter 10. Solomon surrounded himself with objects of gold. He built himself an ivory throne and covered it with gold. All of his wine goblets were of gold. The ships went back and forth with gold and silver and ivory and animals and birds. He had um, chariots and horses that were imported, and Jerusalem had silver abundantly. Wouldn't it be great to see Solomon's splendor? Wouldn't it be great to be able to take a tour of the splendor of Solomon? Well, I want you to know you can have that tour. You can have that tour. Listen to what Jesus taught in uh, Matthew chapter, or in Luke chapter uh, 17, and it's about to come up here. Jesus said, consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Do you believe Jesus? Well, how about that? Did you get out and see the splendor of the wildflowers this year? You better hurry because they're about gone. But what a splendor. More splendid than all the splendor of Solomon. More splendid than Solomon. Solomon's splendor came at a price, a rather big price, high taxes. People had to pay for it. The tax burden was immense. And so when Solomon died and King Rehoboam took over, the people went to King Rehoboam and they said, lighten the burden for us. And he said, come back in three days and I'll give you my answer. So he talked to Solomon's old wise counsels, counselors and they said, Lighten the burden of the people, and they'll be your servants forever. And then Rehoboam talked to his young buddies, and they said to him, You tell those people that your little finger will be bigger than your father's thigh. He made your burden heavy. You will make it heavier. And so Rehoboam called the people back, and he said, I will make your bur- My father made your burden heavy. I will make it heavier. He scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Way to go, Rehoboam. (laughs) And the kingdom split. Ten tribes rebelled and went away from him. You ought to take chapter 12, which gives you that story, and share it with every politician in California (laughs) that they might learn the lesson of Rehoboam because I don't think they've heard it. Because of Solomon's wisdom and wealth, he received a very important visit. A visit from the Queen of Sheba. Sheba might have been, she might have been an Arab from modern-day Yemen. She might have been an African from modern-day Ethiopia. We don't know for sure. But she came for a great visit. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the 
name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he would not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, the cupbearers, and the, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the reports that I heard. And as if he wasn't wealthy enough, she gave him 120 talents of gold, great quantities of spice, and precious, precious stones, and she went home. Jesus taught us that there's a lesson to learn from the Queen of Sheba. Jesus said in Luke 11, the queen of the south will rise in judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something, someone greater than Solomon is here. This woman traveled a great distance to hear Solomon. You have an even greater person than Solomon right in front of you. And you will not listen to his wisdom. She stands in judgment against you. With greater insight comes greater responsibility. With greater opportunity comes greater responsibility. The Queen of Sheba honored Solomon's wisdom. The people of Jesus' day did not honor him. A third feature of Solomon's rule, Solomon established unimaginable worship. Chapter 6 to 8, and uh, as part of this, you'll see what somebody thinks the temple might have looked at. The temple might have looked like. The temple is given to us in chapter 6. Solomon built a great temple for the Lord. It took seven years to construct. I like a statement in verse 7. All of the stones were cut at the quarry. They were sawed to size there. And they were brought and put in place in silence. Said no hammer or other tool was heard in the temple area. You say, I wish my neighbor that rebuilt his house would have <laughs> done something like that. I think we are pretty well past referring to this building as the house of God. I was kind of taught that as a child, but I think we're past that. But it is the place where we carry on most of our ministries. And over the past decades, we've had three waves of facility improvements. It should be, and it is, an excellent place of worship and service. It's an honor to the church, it's an honor to God, and it's an honor to the community. I cannot tell you how many times officers who patrol this area have said to me, Don, it's beautiful what they're doing there at the church. And they were really impressed with that. But what we need to remember is what really counts is not the buildings that we might build, but something else. And Solomon got this message in the process of the building project. It's in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. 
which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. The spiritual condition of king and people is more important than any building they can build. The furnishings are described in chapter 7. One of the furnishings is a great big basin. Now, we have a baptistry in here. I could tell you a little story of how we came across this. I think it's worked pretty well. Thank you very much. Uh, we've had a lot of other options, and this time of the year, the ocean's a little chilly, so uh, we have this baptistry. But the, the, uh, the temple had a basin. It was 18 feet across for religious purposes, for, for worship purposes, and there were also basins for washing. Water is an important feature of worship. And those being baptized today are testifying through baptism and water of their faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one thing that Solomon did not build that went into that building. Do you know what it was? It was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant that dated back to Moses over 400 years earlier, it was brought into that building. What was the Ark? The Ark was the sacrament of the presence and the and the uh, the presence and the glory of God. It symbolized and it secured God's presence in the temple. I like the account that uh, two cherubim were made, great angelic cherubim. Their wing, the cherubim were 18 feet tall, and their wings were 18 feet across. And the, the wings of the two cherubim touched in the middle, and beneath the cherubim was the ark. And if I can assign a symbolism to the cherubim, I would like to suggest that they, that they give divine protection for holy worship. Divine protection for holy worship. We should think of God's angels. In fact, Hebrews teaches this. God's angels being present in the worship of his people. Now, the ark contained only one item. Do you know what it was? The stones, the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant that the people needed to obey to be in fellowship with God. The most important feature of temple construction was the glory of God in verses 10 and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. All this magnificence is nothing if the glory and the presence of God is not there. And Ezekiel saw a vision, a vision years later of the glory of God lifting from the temple and departing from the city. They could still go through the religious motions, but God was no longer in it. How tragic can that be? We can gather on Sunday mornings and we can have strobe lights and great singers and great musicians. We can draw crowds and make everybody happy. We can have people leave and say, wow. But you know, as the old song says, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Every church's ministries and facilities are nothing without the filling of the Holy Spirit. And while we should renovate what needs renovated and renew what needs to be renewed, we need revival. And we should pray, Lord, do it again, do it again, 
do it again. We need the presence of God. Well, such a great piece of construction wouldn't be fit without a great dedication. I've come to the conclusion that people are by nature people of ceremony. What was that? <laughs> Wireless. You can't have them and you can't not have them. <laughs> could tell you a story. I came up to preach one Sunday and I, looked, I didn't have my notes. I had my wireless microphone on. And so I called the praise group up to uh, lead another song and I ran upstairs. And they left the microphone hot. <laughs> I forgot my sermon notes. <laughs> All over the... Could have been worse. Could have been worse. A great dedication of the temple. And the greatest feature of the dedication is Solomon's prayer in chapter 9, in chapter 8. Now, that prayer is, uh, Mary and I are list, listening to this chapter. It's about five minutes long. If Tim's invocation had been five minutes long, there'd be notes on the attendance cards. It's a five-minute-long prayer, but it had two great themes, the greatness of God and the sinfulness of the people. And Solomon took them through step after step after step of of how the people fall into sin and what they needed to do and how God would respond. I thought it would be interesting to turn this into a liturgy, but we don't, don't have time for that. But I'm going to give you just one. Solomon prayed, when your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry and you chastise us, if we have a change of heart and repent and confess and say we have sinned and we turn back to you with our heart and soul, and then the people could say, Hear our prayer, O Lord, and forgive your people their sins. That's the essence of his prayer. Where do you find the temple of God today? Started with the tabernacle, went to Solomon's temple, and then that temple was burnt when the Israelites went into exile. And the, after the exile, they built another temple, didn't hold a candle to Solomon's, but it was a place where God would come. And then Herod renovated that temple, made it something splendid, the Romans destroyed it in AD 70, but where do you find God's temple today? When well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, we find out that the temple is us. The apostles and prophets are the foundation, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We are living stones that make up that temple, and it is all built so that the Holy Spirit might come in and indwell it. You see, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. We could wish that we could close right now. You say, well, let's do that. No. There's a fourth point. There's a fourth point, and it's a sad one. Solomon was corrupted by ungodly wives. By ungodly wives, chapter 11. His great failure was his many wives that led to compromise and idolatry. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I called these political unions, but I want to put the emphasis on unions. They were unions that led to compromise and corruption. And verse 4 is a very sad verse after his magnificent life. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Now it's important that we have ministries 
for our children and our youth, and this is wonderful this morning, because statistics show that as many as 70% may leave the church as they move into adulthood. But it is also important that we consider that it is possible in old age for our hearts to be turned from God. Might be a time of declining health or a financial struggle or the death of close friends and family. Things like this can turn us away from God and we do ministry in their behalf. Do not enter into a marriage with one who might take you away from God. God did not intend that marriage be a place of evangelism. More likely, the uncommitted will take the committed away from faith. I honor many of you who are in marriages where you and your spouse are not united in faith. I honor you for your faithfulness as a strong believer in that situation and I pray that God would use you for the conversion of the other person. But if you're not yet married, don't go into a relationship as Solomon went into these. Idolatry and evil were the tragic results. And God permitted adversaries to arise, including the king that would split the kingdom, the man that would split the kingdom, Jeroboam. Recently, Jim Caviezel gave a speech to university students where he challenged them to remain true to God in face of all that could draw them away. And if you can't read the al alphabet soup on how to find that site, send me an email, don at gracesealbeach.org, and I'll send you the link to Caviezel's speech. It is really something. Oh, that the story of Solomon could have ended with the first three points and stopped at chapter 10. What a tragedy it is to see a life of such wisdom and achievement lead to failure and its consequences because of a lack of wisdom and sin. As the Apostle Paul warns you and warns me, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I'd like us all to pray together a prayer that you have at the end of your, pro of your outline. Let's all pray it out loud. May the Lord our God be with us. May he not leave us or forsake us. May he incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Lord, I pray that you would cause us all to walk in wisdom, and that you would bless our domestic relationships, so that they will not draw us away from God, but will encourage us in our walk with God. In Jesus' name, amen.